0: Okay. So, hey, uh, anybody here excited about being here right now? Anybody? Back in church, regathered? Good. I'm glad. You guys way better than last night. I don't know what the problem was last night, but that was horrible. You guys are awesome. So, I'm John. I'm one of the pastors here. Thanks for being here today, and thanks for watching, if you are. Um, and, and if you're watching and you live in Arizona, Redeemer your church, just a special hi to you. Um, I want you to, I hope you heard that clapping. We love you. We want you to be here, back here as soon as possible. So just want to let you know that that we love you. We miss you. And if you're sitting here now or if you're watching online, you're like, you guys, you need to have a little bit more like uh, distancing or masks before I come back. I just want to remind you that behind me right now, hello to all of you in there, there is a mask only section. So even if this kind of makes you a little nervous, there's a whole section back there, people who are watching in a more distance with masks on. So if that's you here, if that's you watching, just want you to know we're trying to do everything we can to get all of you back here as soon as possible, because everyone in this room would tell you right now, there is something special about being with God's people and worshiping together, right? Amen. All right, so open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. If you have a Bible from an usher, that's page 1054. And as you're turning there, we're going to see in one of the later messages in this series that God's people have been standing to hear God's word for millennia. And so it is appropriate for us to join them now. So if you're able, will you please stand for the reading of God's word? 1 Corinthians chapter 2. We're going to start in verse 1. First Corinthians two one, here is God's word. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear, and much trembling in my speech and my message were, in, we're not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power. So that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. That is God's word for us today. You may be seated. And as you are, join me in prayer. God, it is appropriate for for us to pray right now after reading that passage. That passage is what what I hope happens every time we gather together and, and, and worship you. That's what I hope that happens in every church that I pray for every week. That your Spirit's power would be demonstrated in the ministry that takes place when we're here. That there would be a sense of His, his saving power, His sanctifying power, his, his building community power among us as we meet and hear from you through your Word. So I, I, my prayer is that you would do that now. That there would be a special sense that your spirit is here and active doing all of those things. And not just here. I pray for Mountain View Church. I pray for Pastor Daniel who's preaching three times today. I pray that you would bless and do the same exact thing there by your spirit. Please be powerful there. God, we need revival in our churches. We need it desperately. So please use this passage Use the preaching at Mountain View, please use it to bring revival to the people who hear these things. Do this, please, for our good, and do it, please, for the glory of your name. Amen. So I got the emails, and I saw the social media posts that told me, we need revival after this pandemic. Many told me, or I just saw the, the, the dryness, the crankiness The coldness in their walk with God because the the circumstances that they've been dealing with. Now the cool thing that's been happening recently is that I'm getting different emails now. Emails about theological shifts. Emails about life change. Emails that, that zeal and personal revival is happening in people's lives. And that's my hope for this series. Revival in the Bible has to do with the refreshing of God's people when their commitment to Christ has become stale, cold, or routine. It's not new life, that's salvation, but it's new energy, it's new zeal, it's new passion that's infused into one's life with the Lord. The redeemed go from routinely kind of going through the motions to repentant for their coldness, and then they emerge from that red hot on fire with love for Christ. Carelessness is replaced by enthusiasm, dullness is replaced by devotion. Now this can be individual or this can be on on a large group scale. Now And when the word revival is used to describe events that are outside the Bible, like in church history, it doesn't have this kind of strict meaning like it does in the Bible. When people use the word revival commonly, it refers to these unusual, large-scale experiences of God's grace where he's saving sinners and increasing the holiness of Christians. And it's happening on a large scale. It's these special moments where we're like, it's like when, when you, 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 I mean, we live in the desert, obviously. We feel it every time we go outside. We thank God for air conditioning. But when there's an extended time of, of no rain, no monsoons like we're experiencing now, there's just a dryness and a dustiness and a coldness. But as soon as a monsoon shows up, life comes back, the, the animals are scurrying and the, the 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 dust is 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 laid down and there's there's just more life coming out of the desert and that's what happens to the Christian when they're revived there's new life there's new zeal that returns in revival and if revival is needed because the state of a Christian soul or the state of a church or the state of a church in a region has fallen from the fire that it's once had decay sets into the heart Rot in the spiritual life is pronounced. There's a this logic, there's this, just a sleepy commitment to Christ that's taken over. What is said of the church in Ephesus is true for those in need of revival. Revelation 2, 5, that they left their first love. That means that they, they left the love that they had at first. Do you remember that? When you were first saved... There's just a zeal, an enthusiasm, a a joyful, overwhelming, I can't believe this is true. I I can't believe my sins are forgiven forever. Nothing in the world can be better than Jesus. Remember that kind of love? Revival brings that back. When the things of God, when worship and Bible and prayer and church, when, when they're nothing more than routine, when zeal for God has grown cold, revival is needed. When being religious is more important than being with Jesus, when you, when you excuse or even re, uh, <clears throat> refuse to leave a secret life of sin. When what's on the outside is more important than what's on the inside. That's when revival is needed. When you're satisfied with the reforms of religion and, and you think little of the presence and power of God in your life. When your earthly happiness has your heart far more than your personal holiness. That's when revival is needed. When the ministry of a church can be done completely without God that is when revival is needed. When the cares of this life have caused you to distance yourself from God, revival brings you back. When you know you used to sing and used to pray and used to serve with far more joy and enthusiasm than you have now. When you stop seeking God because you became satisfied with, with, how, with how much growth you have in your life, that is when revival is needed. When you feel shame, when you interact with other Christians who are clearly on fire... When bitterness has filled your heart, when the things of this world have drowned out everything in the next world, that is when revival is needed. When advancing in your career, your education means more than advancing in your relationship with Christ. When the success of your political party means more than the success of the gospel, that is when revival is needed. When the good news Jesus' life and his death and his resurrection and forgiveness of sin and adoption into the family of God and eternal life. When when all of that good news becomes old news, that is when revival is needed. If any of that hits a little too close to home for you, if any of that describes your Christian life right now, then listen, you need revival. A revival of the love you had at first, the love for Christ. Not just intellectual, I know this this is true, but, but love for him. True love for his word, his people, obedience, you need revival. Now, the last two weeks, we've looked at how God brings revival through his word. That's how he brings revival to his people, especially through his word preached. Psalm 119.25, quote, revive me according to your word. Psalm 119.50, your word has revived me. If If you need revival, don't you want to be able to say that? That that happened, that's already happened, because now I'm walking in that revival. You've already revived me, and that's happened by your word. Psalm 119, 93, I will never forget your precepts, because by them you have revived me. Revival comes from God through his word, and and why does God do this? If there's there's a a Christian who's going, I I need revival, I've grown cold, I've grown stale, I need something. Why would God do that for his people? Answer Psalm 119, 88. Revive me, O Lord, according to your loving kindness. It is God's love for his people that propels him to revive his people when, they've, when their love has grown cold. Revival happens through the word of God, the Bible. But the, the agent who determines when and where and how and, and through who revival comes, that agent is God the Holy Spirit. So today in our study, it's going to take us to the book of Acts, 1 Corinthians. We're going to see revival and the Spirit. There is no revival without the Holy Spirit. If, if the Spirit isn't the cause for a revival, then it's not really a revival. Revival is not a man-made production. Human beings can't schedule or conjure up or, or strategize revival. It's not like, hey, a revival this week at 6 o'clock on Thursday night. You can't schedule that thing. But the, the Spirit does not succumb to our schedules. He is sovereign. He does whatever He wants, when He wants. And the Spirit is the cause of the first stirrings of the soul for revival. That that realization that you need it, He convicts of sin. He works repentance. He lifts up Christ in the heart. And here's the thing, He's always present in the true Christian and in the true church, but revival is when He draws nearer. Revival is when His sanctifying and saving work is more obvious when he just seems closer, when communion with him is sweeter, that's revival. And we see the marks of revival in the book of Acts. And so keep your your little ribbon in in 1 Corinthians 2 and turn to Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1 is page 1006 1006 in those blue Bibles. Acts chapter 1. As you're turning there, I just want to Give some background and just say this, that the day of Pentecost, which we will see in Acts 2, that is an unrepeatable event. There has never been and there ne- will never be a second Pentecost like Acts 2. That was the birthday of the church. That is when the new covenant was, that was promised is then be- beginning to be fulfilled. This is when the Spirit goes from being with Jesus' followers to actually being in Jesus' followers. However, what we see in Acts does give us a kind of paradigm for understanding revival. So what do we see in this paradigm? It starts in Acts 1. Jesus tells his followers, he says, hey, wait in Jerusalem for the Spirit. When the Spirit comes, verse 8, he will give you power to be my witnesses all over the world. So 1.14 says that they were united in, quote, devoting themselves to prayer. Think about that. I don't know about you. If Jesus says, hey, I'm going to give this thing to you, I'm just going to sit back and wait for it. Okay, like you said it, I'm just going to wait. Not them. He tells them, the Spirit's going to come to you, and then they go, we need to pray. So they start praying. They're, they're united in prayer. They Notice they devoted themselves to prayer. Then the Spirit comes in Acts 2, and they become bold and powerful witnesses to the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. And notice the result. Chapter 2, verse 7, people were, quote, amazed and astonished. Drop down to 2.12. All were amazed and perplexed. In other words, revival couldn't be hidden. It was something that people, it was obvious, it was unmistakable. 2.14, 2:14 Peter starts preaching. At the end of the sermon, 2:37 notice what it says. The people heard his sermon. They were cut to the heart. It went beyond all of the trappings, the formalism of religion and went right to the inner core of their reality. And 2:41 Many received his word and were baptized and there were added that day about 3000 souls. That's revival. But it doesn't stop there. Notice the effect of revival in 2.42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. That doesn't mean they became mildly interested in it. that's interesting. Yeah, tell me more. No, this word devoted, they attached themselves to it. They were engaged in it. They held fast. They stayed in it. It took over their lives. And not just devotion to the teachings. Notice what else, 242. There's fellowship. There's this connection with other Christians. They're learning with each other. They're loving each other. Notice, too, they're breaking bread. They're eating with each other. This probably refers to communion. They're they're, they're taking communion together. And notice, they're praying together. And as a result, notice what else is there. Awe came upon every soul. There is a tangible, actual realization that God is in our midst. But it goes beyond that. You keep reading, there's, there's, there's also a selflessness about them. They're, they're concerned about those in need. And they were in church all the time, 246. Day after day, they were doing this. It wasn't like a, hey, I'll get to that when I can. No, they were devoted to this. This was, this was the thing for them. They were joyful. They were generous. 247, their hearts were full of worship. And in all of this, God is just adding more and more and more people. So what do we see? We break that down. We see a burden for prayer. We see the burden for prayer that then leads for revival. This awakening, Christians, this zeal is, is, is infused into their lives, and then people are getting saved. It was obvious, unmistakable. And then things like truth and life together, fellowship and prayer and love for others and worship begins to take over these saved people's lives. None of that happened. How did that happen? That happened through the preaching of the Word, and none of that happens without the presence and power of the Spirit. And then we see in Acts 4, the response is not always, wow, that's amazing, give me some of that. The response by many is, we need to stop that immediately. Religious and non-religious people alike come after revival, as we're going to see now as we turn to Acts 18. So turn to Acts 18. We're going to see many of the same things right now that we just saw in Acts 2. Page 1027 in the Bibles we give away. 1027, Acts 18. So by the time we get here in the book of Acts, God is using Paul to spread the good news about Jesus and sins forgiven all over the known world. Acts 18 begins with Paul arriving in the city of Corinth, the city that you could go to, get in a plane and go to in, in, in the country of Greece. Now after Paul settles in the city, look at verse 4. He reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath, every Saturday, and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. Persuade them of what? That Jesus is the Messiah. This was his main activity week after week. That's what he's doing. He's going into the synagogues and trying to convince the Jews that he's a Christian. Well, I'm sorry, that Christ is is Lord. And well, what's the response? Verse 6. The Jews in that city, they opposed and reviled him. So he shook out his garments and said to them, your blood be on your own heads. Wow. That's boldness. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. Well, what is the result of his ministry? What is the result of him doing that? Look at verse 8. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, that's like the the leader who organized everything. He becomes a Christian. His his whole household becomes a Christian. And then notice, and many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. Did you notice that word, many? Many believed? That's revival. Revival. And it's interesting to follow that word many throughout the book of Acts, because here's what you find, Acts four, 4 many of those who'd heard the word believed, and the number of men came to about 5,000. Acts 6, seven, the word of God continued to increase, number of disciples multiplied greatly, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. We, we might think that just a few priests became Christians, but that's not true. A great many of them were saved. Acts 9.42, many believed in the Lord. Acts 11.24, a great many people were added to the Lord. On and on and on we see this. Many disciples, many Jews and and devout converts, they they were following Christ. They became Christians. So it seems that that revival just followed Paul wherever he went. But so did persecution. Look at verse 9. Seems like Paul needs a little encouragement. The Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid. Why would God say that to Paul unless Paul was what? Unless he was afraid. Do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent. Well, why would you say that unless Paul was considering packing things up and going somewhere else? Don't be silent. Why? Verse ten. Because I am with you. No one will attack you to harm you. Why are you got to say that, God? Unless there are people planning to attack him and harm him. And he says, that's not going to happen to you, Paul, because I have many people in this city. I have many in this city who are my people. There had never been a Christian there yet. But God says, there are many of my people there. Namely, so you go get them. You go find those people, preach the gospel, and they'll be saved. So verse 11, he stays there. Notice, 18 months in Corinth, teaching the word of God among the people there. So what we have here in Acts 18 is the founding of the church in Corinth. And so there are two books, 1st and 2nd Corinthians. These, those two letters were written to this church that we just saw birthed in Acts 18. Now turn to 1st Corinthians chapter 2. Because the passage that we read, Paul is talking about this moment that we just read in Acts 18. Where he just arrives. He gets there. He starts preaching. The church in Corinth. The church that the apostle Paul himself planted and discipled for 18 months was full of problems five years later, which really encourages me, big time. Like, that, hap- these things happened in the church that the, one of the apostles planted, Paul himself? Well, then we're always going to have problems, so that's helpful. What were the problems in this church? A celebrity culture had begun to pop up. I'm of Paul, and I'm of Peter, and and we we got our celebrities. God was, uh, (coughs) sin was not cared about. Christians were suing each other. Sexual sin, idolatry, fake spiritual gifts, masquerading as the real thing, errors about end times. All of that was filling the church with confusion and strife. So Paul writes this letter, 1 Corinthians, to address their issues. And answer their questions. And in chapter 2, he's reminding them of the ministry he had with them five years before. Verse 1. And I, when I came to you, when I came to the city of Corinth, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. Notice he came to Corinth to proclaim, to make known in public the good news of what God had done in Christ, reconciling the world to himself. But notice these words. He, he didn't invent this. He didn't figure this out. God revealed this to him. So then he reveals the love of God for sinners in his preaching. And this was his life's mission. You can see this in 117. Notice what it says, 117. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. And notice this last phrase. Not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. And we, we just saw this in 2.1, right, that, that, this is, that there is something going on where, where Paul is making it clear that I, I'm, uh, there a, there's a certain right way to preach Christ and there is a wrong way. We saw it in 2.1, right, that, that he came proclaiming, notice, not with lofty speech or wisdom. This means that he didn't preach to gain a following. He didn't preach to get attention. He didn't preach so that people would go, wow, he is an amazing preacher, He didn't preach to build a platform. He didn't use words and gestures and tone to manipulate emotions. He wasn't there to show off his knowledge, his abilities, his eloquence. He just wanted his hearers to be impressed with the Messiah, not the messenger. And the Holy Spirit, here's the point for us. The Holy Spirit used this kind of preaching to bring revival to Corinth. So what can we learn from that? Well, the first thing we learn is this, revival is kindled in the heart by a pure message. Point number one, a pure message. Pure meaning, yes, free from false teaching, obviously. But what I mean by that is free from the theatrics, free from self-promotion, free from manipulation. Paul uh, returns to this idea the next time he writes to this church in in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. And listen to how he describes his preaching there, 2 Corinthians 4.2. We have renounced disgraceful and underhanded ways. There's a way to preach to manipulate people that's not honest. He says, we refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. And then he says, but in contrast to all of that, by open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's consciences in the sight of God. Religion, politics, philosophy, psychology, rhetoric, none of that sparks revival. What sparks revival is the open statement of the truth directed in the preaching event at people's consciences as those people are brought into the presence of God. God's word doesn't need help from a preacher, it simply needs to be unleashed by the preacher to do whatever it is that God intended it for it to do. And here's Paul's point to do anything else would suggest the power is in the eloquence of the preacher not in the grace of God through a pure message. It suggests the gospel is advanced by the powerful when it's actually advanced in weakness while being ignored by the powerful. It suggests the gospel is advanced by the brilliant. When 1 Corinthians one twenty one, you can see it, it says it pleases God through the foolishness of what is preached to save people. So the message is corrupted when it's, when it's exploited to make the preacher a star. A pure message, free from sin, free from self, will always point to Christ. And notice chapter 2, verse 2. That's where Paul goes next. I decided to know nothing among you. Except what? Jesus Christ and him crucified. If I had a verse that I want to evaluate my ministry, it's this one. I have a plaque on my door as I leave my office. There's a plaque right there that says we preach Christ and Him crucified. That this is the goal for every preacher. Paul could have pontificated about a whole host of things. He was one of the most brilliant people alive in his day. Instead, he just played the same song over and over and over and over and over. Christ crucified. Because he knew The speaker is not the one to be on display. The Savior is the one who goes on display. In the face of a culture that admired speakers, we can't connect with this. But speakers, public speakers, were some of the greatest celebrities of this day. Many of the only ones greater would be government officials or teachers of public speakers. So if if you were to go out to dinner, you know, so you go to a restaurant... And uh, there's a TV on, and so you're eating, and you can watch TV and all that. In the first century, if you're going to take your 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 spouse out to dinner, there would be public speakers at your restaurant, and you would pay one of them to speak on something that you wanted to know about. So you would pay them, and while you're eating, you're going to be listening to a guy preach to you. That was the first century. Public speaking was raised to one of the highest levels in that culture. And Paul is saying, God needs none of that. He doesn't need any of it. What needs to be celebrated is Christ. So, he, so Paul's going, I'm happy to be a nobody, a complete nobody, because my job is to tell everybody about Jesus, the only somebody that really matters. And so again, as we take a step back and go, can okay, you cause revival through what Paul is saying here? What can we learn from that about revival for our lives? It's this, revival is kindled by point number two, a praised Christ, a high and exalted, a, a high and lifted up Christ revives people in the celebrity culture that had infected this church that had made Paul and Peter and Apollos these heroes. He reminds them, when I was with you, I didn't do that. When I was with you, I was telling you all your admiration should go to Christ and not him. He's there to proclaim Christ, not as a good person or as a great teacher, not as an example or a martyr or a revolutionary, but notice Jesus Christ and him crucified. Let's just break that down for a second. Jesus in his office as Christ. Christ means king of the universe. Christ means the divine prophet, the the speaker of God's word. And Christ means the savior priest. A savior priest who is, according to the text, crucified to make atonement for his people. Crucified to take the punishment that they deserve for their sins. Crucified to satisfy God's wrath against them for their sins. And from All that Jesus is, and from all that Jesus did, flows the gospel. But also, that flows the whole of Christian theology, Christian thought. From that flows the entire Christian worldview, and from that flows the core of the Christian life. It all revolves, and all of Christianity, you want a bottom line? It is this, Christianity is about Christ and Him crucified. However, nobody gets to any of those other things. Until God brings them first to Christ crucified, the stumbling block for some and foolishness for others. Think about it. I mean, we're, we're familiar. We celebrate it. We have Christmas and Easter and all these things about Jesus. But think about how idiotic a dead king, worshiping a dead king is. Think about how idiotic worshiping a crucified Messiah is. That's like calling people to believe in a man who was killed in an electric chair. Like, well, only the worst of criminals get killed in an electric chair. You're telling me to believe in a guy that couldn't even save himself from that, but he's supposed to save me from sin, death, and hell? Why? Like, he couldn't save himself. Can he really save me? And Paul says, yes. Yes, he can. Yes, he can. And he proved it by rising from the dead. Which is why Paul was determined to make Christ crucified the regular subject of his preaching, his teaching, his discipleship. It was all about Christ. Even though he'd become a kind of celebrity at this church, Paul wanted the people not to remember or applaud him at all. He wanted all praise to go to Christ. And that's what he's doing here. He's reminding them, this is what I did. I didn't draw attention to myself. I wanted all your attention to go to Christ. He's the only one who deserves it. He's the hero. Paul is nothing. And you see that in verse 3. I was with you, and I was with you. When, When I was there, those 18 months, I was there in weakness and in fear and much trembling. There was nothing at all impressive about Paul the preacher, the public speaker. And this, again, is at a time when public speakers were some of the most influential, most impressive people in the Roman world. It's hard, again, for us to imagine, but public speakers, some of the most influential in the ancient world, and Paul, again, is saying God doesn't need any of that. In fact, I was the exact opposite of that. The revival that God the Holy Spirit sparked in the city of Corinth came through a man, verse 3, who was weak and afraid. And notice the text, how afraid was Paul? What does it say? He was so afraid, he was trembling. I mean, that's what would cause that? A lot of speculation from really smart guys about what Paul's talking about there. But I think we, we, I think we got a clue already in, in Acts 18. We saw in Acts 18.6 that the Jews were opposing him. And, and he was very strong in that moment. Blood be on your hands. But then God shows up, right? And God says, hey, don't be afraid. He says, hey, don't be silent. Hey, don't stop speaking. Hey, nobody's going to harm you. Nobody's going to attack you. I think that's what Paul's getting at here. See, the, he, the people in the ancient world, if public speaking was like one of the heights of entertainment at that time, one of the, one of the most important influential things that happened in that culture, then, then the regular everyday person was a professional speech listener and speech criticizer. I would hate to have been alive at that time. But I think the idea here is that Paul is saying, you knew this about me. You saw my fear. You saw my weakness. I was was trembling when I was with you. And think about how counterintuitive is that? The Holy Spirit used this kind of preacher, weak, afraid, to revive the people in Corinth. So what can we learn from that about revival? I think it's this. Revival is kindled in the heart by a pitiful messenger. A pitiful messenger. What I mean by that is inadequate, unpretentious. Self-effacing, humble. If you saw Paul, you would not think seminary president. You saw Paul, you would think janitor. Like that's what would come to your mind. There was nothing about Paul's appearance that shouted excellence. And that's because a humble Christ, a humble Christ is best preached by a humble preacher. The strong, the uber-competent, the pompous, the overconfident cannot preach a weak, tortured, crucified, humble, submissive Christ. Because their life and, and their method would contradict the message of the Messiah. We miss this because we put so much stock in the outward appearance. But inadequacy, humility aren't seen by what we see on the outside. And you can see Paul's, you can see him reiterate this in in chapter 4. So look at 1 Corinthians chapter 4. He's saying the good news about Jesus does not advance because of what the preacher can do. That's verse 1. And now in verse 3 we're saying that the gospel doesn't advance because of what the preacher is. He's nothing. And listen to how Paul describes himself. Chapter 4 verse 1. This is how one should regard us as masters in Christ. Is that what your Bible says? Masters? No, it says servants. Just a helper. Just an assistant. Nothing special here. The word is used for the rowers on the bottom of these Roman ships. Just one a dozen of rowers here. Really not contributing much. Look at 4.9. As an apostle, he was, quote, last of all. Like men sentenced to death because he was a spectacle. A kind of carnival freak show to the world. 410, he's a fool. He's weak. He's held in disrepute, meaning he's despised, dishonored. He's insignificant. Others look at him and just, and, and just throw shame on him. 411, he is, quote, poorly dressed and beaten and homeless. No pastoral search committee is going to pick him to be their pastor. They're going to look at him and go, you need to clean the, yourself up. he's reviled and persecuted. 4.13, he's slandered as the scum of the world, the refuse, the garbage of all things. This is not exaggeration. Paul's not doing this for rhetorical effect. He's helping them understand that Jesus is all that matters and that he is nothing. That nothing is the kind of man that we ignore. But this is the kind of man that God uses to save and revive more people than anyone else in the history of Christianity. Now, why does God save and revive through someone like that? I think the answer is in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7. 2 Corinthians 4, 7. You can turn there if you want to. Just one book to the right. Now, we're gonna, we, it, it's easy for us to miss this because there's a famous Christian band that uses this phrase. But this phrase tells us <clears throat> how the pitiful messengers just how pitiful they are that that God is pleased to use to spark revival to 2 Corinthians 4 7 we have this priceless powerful treasure of the gospel we have this treasure but it's packaged in quote jars of clay jars of clay clay are not these ornamental bowls that you display on a shelf they're not they're not what you would serve dinner in on thanksgiving these are just baked clay. They're no valuable, no value at all. They're common, they're replaceable, they're crude. Archaeologists find thousands and thousands of these all over the place. They, they are of little value at all. And Paul goes, you know those little things that you have in your house that are full of dirt and trash? Like, that's us. That's what we are. Why? Note, keep reading. Why does God advance the gospel? <clears throat> Why does he cause revival through people like that? Notice. Were jars of clay to show that the surpassing power to save people, to revive people, that power belongs to God and not to us. The power of God to save, the power of God to build a community of Christians, the power of God to revive and awaken, to change lives is clearly seen when that power is not being eclipsed by the self importance and pomposity of a preacher. God doesn't need our help, our brains, our personalities, our charisma, our influence, our abilities, or anything else to bring revival. A messenger that's not pitiful will preach himself instead of Christ. He'll use Christ to bring glory to himself rather than being used by God to bring glory to Christ. And then God will strip, he will strip men of all those things. He will not share his glory with anyone and until a preacher gets that, God will never revive anyone through him. Now, the key, the source of this revival, the agent of the revival that the Corinthians experienced, is in verse 4. Everything I've said so far is introduction. Now we get to the point. Verse 4. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 4 says, My speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom. Well, what was it in then, Paul. It was in the demonstration of the spirit and of power. The power of revival. The power to save sinners and awaken Christians from their spiritual slumber. That power we've seen so far is not in the presentation. And it is not in the preacher. That power is in a powerful spirit. Point number four. A powerful spirit. What Paul said sparked revival in Corinth. God used his preaching, Acts 18.8, to see many people believe in Jesus. Non-Christians would look at that and go, and it's got to be because he's a great preacher. It's got to be because he's so eloquent. It's got to be because he's so zealous. He's so smart. Maybe it's his leadership ability. Maybe that's why all of that happened. And Paul goes, no, 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 no. If that's what you think, you missed everything. The reason this happened is the demonstration of the spirit and power. In other words, the revival they experienced did not depend on him at all. It depended on the Spirit's power, his power to save, his power to change, his power to unify people, to praise God, reach the lost, and to, to become a local church. By the way, the word power cannot refer to miracles. That's because 1 Corinthians one twenty-two says that Paul is contrasting the, 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 the power of miracles with the power of the gospel. He says, put the miracles aside and preach Christ." Preaching the cross, chapter 1, verse 18, it says, is the power of God. So what is this power? One eighteen says the power is preaching the cross. One twenty-four says that Christ himself is the power of God. So in context, the power here in 2.4 is preaching Christ crucified in the power of the Spirit. When you see the demonstration of the Spirit's power, what is the proof that the Spirit has power? The, Spirit, the, the, the proof is this. People are saved. People change. A church is birthed. That was the proof, Paul is saying. That's the proof. The Spirit is among you. And all of that, he says, had nothing to do with me. The point, again, he did nothing. The Word and the Spirit did everything in this revival. They're changed lives. They're the saved. The community, all of that was proof that the message was true, that Jesus is alive, that the Spirit does have the power to save and to revive. True revival, like Paul saw in Corinth, follows Zechariah 4.6. You remember that verse? True revival happens not by might, right? Not by, not by the competence of the people. and Not by power, not by their strength, not by their willpower. True revival happens by God's Spirit. So Paul stayed out of the way. And his goal, his purpose for refusing to do all those public tr- speaking tricks, to get all attention to himself. Notice the reason he did that, verse 5, was so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but that your faith would rest in the power of God. Paul resolved to preach Christ in him crucified. Paul was weak and pitiful and humble instead of manipulating people. He did that so that their faith would not rest in him. Again, he's going, I'm not a hero. I'm not to be looked at. This is about Christ. He is the hero so that their faith would not rest in him but in Christ. 18 months of revival. 18 months. And you might think after a while he would be in this passage going, you know what, I needed to, remember when I had to repent because I let it go to my head a little bit and thought this was about me? He didn't say that at all. 18 months of revival. And the whole time he gives all the credit for it to the Spirit of God. Because he understands the superficial manipulation of speakers, the... Trust in a man or an argument or a method or an organization will always be susceptible to a better man and a better argument and a, a better method and better organization. But if it's the Spirit that saves, if it's the Spirit that revives, his work in their lives cannot be overthrown by anything superior. Why? Nobody is superior to God. Nobody has more power. Nobody's more convincing than him. The Spirit is the artist. Revival is the Mona Lisa. Paul is the paintbrush. And Paul's point is, uh, nobody praises the paintbrush. Nobody praises the paintbrush for the painting. It would be silly to praise the paintbrush for the painting. All praise belongs to the artist who made the painting possible. So whether it's trust in Christ... It's, he is the power of God, and when that trust comes by the Spirit of God, who is the power of God, that trust, that faith can never be overpowered, that faith can never be overthrown, that faith stands firm, it remains, it is indestructible. So, as we take a step back now, okay, what can we learn about the revival in Corinth and bring into our lives? We see that revival comes through a pure message, a a, a message free from self and full of truth a message that praises Christ, that lifts him up, that, that comes through a pitiful, humble messenger and a powerful spirit. That is how revival comes. There's no true revival apart from this. Not in your life, not in a church, not in a nation. And we've seen that the soil for revival is prepared through through brokenness, through repentance. And the medicine that, that, that needs to go to that troubled soul is Christ. And Christ is administered through the mouth of a humble preacher, preaching the gospel by the power of the Spirit. And when that revival happens, this will be the effect. When revival happens in a soul, you will pray. Psalm 80, verse 18, revive us and we will call upon your name. We will seek you. We will want more of you in our lives. We will seek to know you and spend time with you as you've revived us. Revival will lead to worship and rejoicing, Psalm 85, 6. Being with him and his word, it won't be a chore that you have to do. It'll be be a necessity that you want to do. You'll devote yourself afresh to the ways of God, living for him, Psalm 119, 37. Doing what he says. You'll devote yourself afresh to the work of God, Ezra 9, verses 8 and 9. There will just be a seriousness, uh, seriousness about the things of God. There'll be a deep desire to just hear the Bible, to hear from God. There'll be a brokenness that may be tears over sin and apathy, or might be weeping for joy. And again, just going, I can't believe that I know this Savior. I can't believe that he loves me. This is not about trying to convince you of some argument. This is about introducing you to the Savior of your soul. Sins will be confessed. Idols will be repented of. A closer walk with the Lord will be all that matters that, that, that hard shell, that stony concrete around your heart will be broken and there will be this sense of like, wait, what is that? What is that joy? What is that, that love that I'm, that I'm having again? It's reminding me when I was first saved. New yearnings for holiness, new, new commitments to prayer, a deepening concern for the lost. All of that marks revival the truths that you, 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 you know intellectually will suddenly have this new dimension to them, this new force to them in your soul, this new influence on your life, this new love for Christ. You'll see things in the Bible that you never saw before. And what'll happen, it'll thrill your soul. The Bible isn't coming alive in that moment. That's what we often to say, the Bible's coming alive. No, the Bible is alive. You just woke up. If you've experienced revival, if you personally have experienced real revival, whether personal, a lot of people, whatever, nothing in your Christian life has been sweeter. And you know it. You can think about those moments right now. Nothing at all compares to that. And, and when you're in your right mind, you want to go back to that. You want to sit in that. You want to enjoy that. You never want to leave it because God seems so much more real and so close and so powerful and influential in your life. You're going, "Where how did I get out of that? Like was there just some kind of like shower coming down and I, I stepped in and said like, "Where can I get back to that?" You know it if you've experienced that. You know exactly what I'm talking about. And I've shown you in previous messages how it happens. It happens. God uses his word to revive the saved. And today I showed you that that happens by the By the work of the Spirit. So if you need revival, put these two things together. Read your Bible, pray, study, meditate, memorize the Bible, and pray. Pray for God's Spirit to revive you. Listen, He has the power to revive you. He is willing to revive you. He he loves you. He's in you. He's in you. So He he doesn't need to go very far. We don't need temples, right? Why? Because we are temples are temples of the holy spirit he lives in us so pray to him to revive you pray to the spirit to revive pray this for yourself pray it for your church you, you'll hear me often pray revive your churches your true churches in this area cuz we need this it's funny in these in these the, you know the past 5 months have been kind of crazy right and uh talked to lots of christians and they it, it's some kind of some kind of uh, variation of the same thing I hear, which is, like, this is the end. Like, I'm looking up. Jesus coming back any moment. And, and, and after studying revival, my thought is, man, when, when that happens, what Habakkuk 2.14 says will be true. The, the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God as the waters cover the sea. That will be the revival to end all revivals. However... If things are really about to get like book of revelation on us, then we should be praying for revival for the whole world. Cuz if it's if it's going to get bad, like like many people I've talked to think it's going to get really bad soon. If that's true, and gosh, let's not just pray revival for ourselves if we need it, but God be gracious all over the world one last time. If it's going to get really bad, God, please send revival. And now we've seen through these two messages how he does that. He does it through the Word, and he does it through the Spirit. So as we're praying for revival, that's what we're praying for. God, unleash your Word by the power of your Spirit all over the world. But before that happens, I think it's appropriate for us to say, but do it in my heart. Do it in my heart today. Let's pray. God, it's hard to preach on revival without saying, I need that. I want that. I want more of that. And God, what I know about preaching is that I have a a friend in the heart of every Christian, the Spirit. who, when, When what I say matches what he said in the Bible, there's a resonance there. And he's causing the head to nod and he's causing the convic- conviction and he's causing the, the, the desires to change. And so God, my prayer for all of us, because I believe that we all know how you want us to respond to a message like this. My prayer is that you would give us the grace and the courage and the determination to do what we already know we need to do in response. For some in here, that might mean giving their life to Christ right now. No more excuses, no more pushing the work of your spirit away but bowing the knee giving their life to Christ for others it'll be responding in that specific way to that specific thing in our lives that that we know you want us to do. Please help us We are weak. Like Paul, we are weak. We are afraid. Help us please to do that, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.